0: Welcome back
1: to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha, and I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode we are doing our second installment on Peace. This is part two of Chapter One, covering pages twenty-six through forty-two in the Orb twenty-twelve edition.
0: If this uh, episode were part of a TV series, this would be the Christmas episode of (laughs) Peace. Uh, Maybe a little darker than your typical Christmas episode. Maybe not. We don't know what anything means yet. We're going to find out as we go through the story. So,
1: Glenn, let's just get right into it. (laughs) All right. The last episode, we we got some bits of the the presents and, and then also a handful of different memories. But this episode, it's really just going to be... One memory. It's a a single episode told over about 15 pages, but we do have to get there first. And we do have a couple pages of We're in the present musing about something. Uh, This is something we talked about last time. It it starts here with his Boy Scout pocket knife, which uh, is also what's going to lead us to the main event here. And this knife is something that Weir has mentioned previously. He's misplaced it, and he wants to go look for it. And now that Dr. Van Ness has given him the okay to get exercise, he is going to wander around his very big house with so many rooms that he doesn't remember what's in all of them uh, in order to look for where he may have misplaced this pocket knife. But of course, he thinks about the knife before he gets started on his quest for it, his search for it. And the logo on it has him thinking about trees and the color of leaves in autumn. Why don't humans have skin the color of autumnal leaves is a question that he ponders. Uh, In fact, let's let's just read this bit. It's very interesting the trees whose leaves are dying with the summer in every color like bruises but bruises beautiful as the skins of races unborn withheld from us because god or destiny or the bland chance of the scientists whose blind piping ape god idiot god we have met before we know you troubler of babylon has denied us the sight of all these scarlet and yellow, truly red, orange, russet-brown races on our sidewalks, and all the wonderful richness of stereotypes we might have entertained ourselves with if only they had been permitted us. So... There's a lot going on in that paragraph. I mean, I think Gene Wolfe also just invoked Azathoth, which is a fairly deep <laughs> cut, actually, in the 1970s when Lovecraft stories would have been really hard to come by. Uh, but this is also a passage in which Wolfe is directly addressing the concept of race, and he's envisioning or uh, he, you know, he's about to, in the next paragraph, uh, envision what fantastical humans with skin pigmentations in the colors he's just listed here would be like. But he's going to do it in a, a very 19th century adventure fiction way where the, the races each have special attributes and the question of whether those are simply culture or whether they are biologically innate in some way, right? that, where that question is muddled at best, which is also, of course, how d d does this as well. Uh, so I do think we'll probably table most of our conversation about that until the discussion episode next month. But it is a really interesting uh, paragraph.
0: It's actually like a treatise on race theory and speculative yeah. fiction. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned d and D. I I mean, it is and it isn't. But in the ways that this is a treatise on, on race theory and speculative fiction, Wolf well, through Weir it seems to be pointing out the reliance on stereotyping in order to give a sense of place and its people and when you just mention 19th century adventure fiction what we're really talking about colonialism and the fact that like stereotypes are really in the eye of the beholder stereotype is a word used here in the text and in this case what wolf and and weir end up describing is literally manufactured people like Objects that they interact with are like fly bait like plastic bait for fishing, and they are the object of prey for the boy's knife maker like this is an imaginary world of of a manufactured race in. Not just the imaginative sense, but also in the sense of it's made by the hands of others. It is handmade. That's what manufacture means. By the way, I don't know. <laughs> Probably everybody knows that, but I'm using it in both senses that we think of it. Uh, you know, in this imaginary world that Wolf is talking about, uh, though, and 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 we will be talking about this because it's tied up in cosmology as well. So this will be part of our, our cosmological. Discussion, I think, on the first chapter. So what's important here is that th- these imaginary people, the, the place where they live in this world and this manufactured world is Saint Brendan's island or Saint Brendan's land. And this is reference to, uh, like an early monk or saint or something like that who explored a little bit around the same time as Columbus and found this island that like nobody has been able to find since. Uh, but I do want to point out this, this case of Saint Brendan because I think this, uh, first of all, this sort of Irish connection is important. Um, but also this sense of the imaginary, undiscoverable place where anything is now possible, because nothing can be either validated or falsified. I talked this about this a little bit in the last episode. Uh, nothing can be validated or falsified by a second encounter with this people and culture is is a big part of what Wolf is thinking through in this section as well. It's a lost place which I think is this thing that features a lot in this story. The lost place and its inhabitants are really made of memory and supposition and extrapolation. So while Wolf is talking about this kind of, I don't know, race theory and speculative fiction, I think what we need to be paying attention to as readers of this story, as we're thinking about the thought process of we're Is really uh, the lost place, the unfalsifiability of memory and the places that it can travel to. Also, perhaps of imagination.
1: Right, so we're not even twenty full pages into this story yet, and already we, we've got several invocations of of fantastical stories, things that are are really just like European fairy tales, I guess we we could we could say. Right, this this legend of Saint Brendan's Island is is certainly you know something along those lines. Uh, Brendan, I think you said that Saint Brendan was around the time of Columbus. He's about nine hundred years before Columbus. He's a sixth century. Monk. It's actually like more contemporary to Saint Patrick. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right about that. Yeah, (laughs) I just wanted. I just wanted to make sure let's put that to side here. (laughs) There's one (laughs) other point
0: I want to make here uh, before moving on, which is this uh, idea about pulling weeds, which opens the section about a way to get exercise, Uh, also brings us into Weir's mindset. He says, sometimes the weed I pulled was nicer than the blossom that I cultivated. And I wanna say here I don't know a whole lot about gardening. I used to listen to you bet your garden on NPR. Uh <laughs> I think I'm pretty good at picking out flowers from the grocery store that live longer than they have any right to. Uh so maybe I have green fingers or a green thumb, as we say. But uh anyway, the point I'm trying to make is based on the little that I know, this is a kind of inverse <laughs> of an ethic of gardening. <laughs> it's 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 preferencing an aesthetic beauty over the good for the cultivated garden. And and uh, listen, that's something I think a lot, about a lot philosophically, uh, but this statement seems like a metaphor for something that continues almost immediately after this into uh, we are thinking about trees and he describes them as being addicts. It's a really dark description of trees in winter, that they're like fiends, as if they're capable of making these ethical decisions. He ascribes this notion of addiction to them, which is, I think we'd say a bad thing. Instead of trees are something whose biological process requires light, requires photosynthesis. It would be wrong to characterize them in this way. So there's this real ethical inversion taking place uh, in thinking about a garden and thinking about um, maybe even the makeup or the categories of the, of the world in some sense. And then that leads us into this cosmological description of race and of um, maybe even natural selection on some level. So this is all kind of tumbling towards maybe nothing, maybe metaphors, maybe loose ends. We don't quite know yet, but
1: uh, it's all here and it all is in Weir's mind. We've seen gardening be important in some wolf stories before, right? So I mean, I think we should have. As soon as the doctor uh, told Weir that he needed to go garden, you know, pull weeds or something, you know, that that should have set off a, a red alert uh, for us. So we'll we'll need to pay particular attention to that. And you know, this even just the idea of of the difference between a weed and a flower is is not taxonomical in in any way. It's really just a, a matter of you know do you want it or not? And that's totally subjective, right? And, you know, here we are in someone else's memories, wondering how accurate those memories are, how truthful they are, like, what's the veracity of what we're going to see, right? This is a story that is entirely uh, subjective in its its own nature. And uh, now we're having that sort of, you know, pointed out to us here with this metaphor.
0: Yeah. And in a more pragmatic sense, how useful they are to the garden. I mean, the reason why you don't want weeds in a garden is because they'll choke out the ability of growth for the other flowers uh, for, for the cultivated blooms that don't have that same kind of uh, viral growth or something like that that weeds have. So yeah, you could have a weed garden. You could have a natural garden where weeds are kept down or you keep certain weeds because they're beautiful. But the idea is that you don't want weeds in the garden in a cultivated garden because they're not useful for the growth of the other plants. And you know, We have this relationship, I think, with memory and thought as well.
1: Well, uh, we promised everyone a Christmas episode, so (laughs) should we go to Christmas? (laughs) Let's go to Christmas. All right. Well, the the pocket knife that is really the source of all of this musing was a Christmas gift. And Weir is going to tell us about that Christmas. He was a child. Uh, He's six at this time, he tells us. Though, you know, if his birthday's in May, he's, he's halfway to seven at this point, which is a big deal when you're that age. And speaking of how old Weir was and when his birthday is, we have not talked at all yet about when this story is. I think... You know, probably, maybe we'll we'll make that a question in the discussion episode. But I think it is fair to say that all the childhood memories are before the Second World War, and 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 that can at least ground our imagination in the material culture here, like what things look like and and what technologies are available, uh, and, that, and that sort of thing. And and that is going to matter a bit in this memory. But all right, so where's a child? Uh, he and his mother are going to visit his grandfather, his his mother's father, for Christmas. Now, we don't know why Weir's father is not there. We also don't know really where this grandfather lives, but his house is on the Mississippi River, and it is far enough south that snow is unusual, but not unknown. And we know it's not Memphis, but we do know that Memphis seems to be the closest big city. So, you know, maybe it's Tennessee, maybe it's Arkansas, but in any case, they get there by train and then are driven to the house by a taxi driver. The house is made of wood. It's painted. This is very similar to Weir's own home in Kansas. But the main difference between his house and his grandfather's house is the windows. Uh, In Kansas, the windows are narrow, but here they are wide, Uh, though this house may also be smaller than the house in Kansas. Uh, But the grandfather seems still to be solidly in the upper middle class of this community, and the taxi driver talks about the grandfather as if he's an important person in this town. Uh, And let's also talk about who lives in this house before we we pause to digest all of this information. Uh, So there's there's grandpa. uh, It's mother's father. Uh, Mother's mother is dead, though we don't know how long ago that was. But there is another woman living in the house, uh, Mab Crawford. She's around 40. She's plump. She's blonde. And her husband has left her and gone to Memphis. So now she lives here as a housekeeper, uh, though it is clear uh, and will become clear as we continue that there is more to her relationship with Weir's grandfather than that.
0: One thing I also want to point out here is that the father is not coming along for this Christmas. That's more estrangement, more distance that the narrator has from his father that we get hinted here in the text. Uh, And then later on during this Christmas memory, I might not point it out, though you may, Glenn. We see that the grandfather kind of, I don't know, maybe doesn't think so highly of the father, like maybe he thinks he's a coward or is overprotective or overbearing in some way. Uh, I'm not sure. My sense is that the relationship between the grandfather and father is not especially great. Uh, and, and, and you're right to point out that this is all pre-World War II, probably very long before World War II, though... It's strange because when the narrator, when Weir is discussing this knife, he describes it in this German term of fünf cent stuck silver, which means five cent piece silver. It's like cheap silver, not pewter, um, or like sterling silver or anything like that, uh, not German silver like the buttons of the SS. So he's got this like post World War 2 mentality kind of casting back. So we do know that it's it's definitely pre World War 2. In this section we also get the the mother's full name which is Adelina. Adelina Elliot is her full maiden name and Adelina is a name that means noble or nobility. She often goes by Dell, uh, you know, which has a similar meaning. Mab Mab Crawford here. Mab is the name given to uh, the fairy queen. And this first shows up in English literature, I think in Romeo and Juliet. It's a a part of Mercutio's uh, monologue that he gives, where he refers to Mab. And then this has later been picked up and is kind of the Fairy Queen with capital letters in English literature, uh, and this name is likely rooted in the Latin word for lovable. Another variant of this name is is Mabel, uh, a, ma- a, ma- a Mabelus, I think is the the Latin word. So that's also here on the table. This is a very sort of fairy esque name, a mythic name um, that is given to Mab. I think that's fairly important. We also get uh, the grandmother's name in this section, his mother's mother. This is uh, Evadne, which is another, this is a mythological name, uh, not really associated with fairies so much. But Evadne, in, in mythology is a woman who had an affair with Apollo and produced a child, Yamos, uh, the boy of the violets. And this boy went on to find a family of priests of Olympian priests uh and that's interesting because we also have the surname of Weir's mother and his grandfather's Elliot. This is a name that could refer to the biblical prophet Elijah. It could also come from the old English that means noble gate. Elijah is famous for never having died, but he you know he's another prophet he he was prophesied to be resurrected before the judgment day, uh, before the day of the Lord, as it's referred to in the, in the Jewish scriptures. And the gospels report that there were many who believed that John the Baptist, who is an important figure, he prefigures Christ was Elijah reborn, thus being the one who prepared the way for the Jewish Messiah. But Adelina here means nobility, as we pointed out. And so if there's like this noble gate connection, there's something to do with nobility or some kind of maybe innate nobleness of this family as well could also just be a common surname that Wolf chose. I'm going to keep on using that until we figure out if these names have any bearing on meaning. Um, But maybe if John the Baptist has shown up in the text somewhere, you know, through the guise of Elijah, through this weird name, uh, this weird kind of movement through history to get to the name Elliot, uh, we should be looking for Jesus, though, you know, as we'll see in our next episode, maybe we should be
1: keeping our eyes open for something else entirely. Yeah, we're at some point, and maybe we'll do it every chapter or every other chapter, and then do it again at the end. You know, we'll have to check in on these names and just see what's going on. But I do like the way that Wolf is is building up this this just this rich use of the names, right? Where these names are coming from, all really all are coming from so many of the linguistic traditions that make up Anglo culture, and but then even just American culture, more more broadly conceived. So we've got uh, the ancient Mediterranean traditions, the two ancient Mediterranean traditions that really matter to us, right? The, the Greco-Roman tradition, and then also the Jewish tradition. But then we've got some some properly English names going on here as well. I mean, you know, a name that seems to be invented by Shakespeare, right? That's a big deal.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then Crawford is also just a totally local name. It just has a local meaning. Uh, so it's not like a name with uh, a deep history. And that's Mab Crawford. So it's very robust i think what wolf is doing with names here the last thing i want to point out about this section is uh, a passage on page 32 which is another treatise on uh, that that weir gives us but this one's on childhood memory and why it's important and a key line here in the section is uh, that we're Doubt has reason to doubt his own childhood memory. But that doesn't matter because what was or was not factually true has left an impression. And that impression is what we're dealing with in this uh, quest through Weir's memory. What has formed Alden Dennis Weir is not the objective reality that he's encountered, but his subjective encounter with the world and the impressions that he has received and interpreted, whether correctly or incorrectly, as a result. And, and childhood memory here is another one of these lost places that we're returned to and inhabits throughout this story, whose falsifiability is impossible. And so what we're dealing with is the the received impression, the left impression
1: of these memories, not their factual accuracy. Yeah, right. The, the specific context for this is that he remembers the house being white, but maybe he, it wasn't. He, he says he might just be remembering the snow. It's like, yeah, I think the house was white. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was the snow that was white. But at any rate, something was white. I remember white. Right. And he's certain that
0: the house had an exterior because, hey, he has to extrapolate that uh, <laughs> information because houses have exteriors, uh, but he doesn't remember what the exterior was apart from it being white. And then this is going to move us into all of this business about dollhouses,
1: which don't have exteriors when you're playing with them. Right. Yeah. So just as Weir and his parents in in Kansas are now living in the house that Weir's own father grew up in, this house where they're visiting his maternal grandfather. This is the house that his mother grew up in. And in fact, the two of them are are going to share a room. And it is the same room that Weir's mother shared with her sister when, when they were kids. And she tells Weir that they used to have a big dollhouse on the floor between their beds. Weir thinks that is super cool. And he asks if he's going to get a dollhouse for Christmas And of course, he is not because dollhouses are for girls. But this is really disappointing news to Weir because he has played with a big dollhouse before with one of his friends uh, as a girl. True, though the connection there had never occurred to him before. Uh, But he's played with a dollhouse and he's been really wanting one. In fact, he's been counting on getting one, it seems. And the the plan was, uh, you know, what he's been wanting to do, what he's been daydreaming about is putting his toy soldiers in the dollhouse with their guns pointing out the the windows
0: yeah this is this is a kind of i don't know if it's a classic fantasy i've never had this fantasy but it's basically like a soldier's quartering in a house fantasy uh maybe he's read some world war one stories where you know the heroes uh you know that had to stay in a house and fought a battle from the windows or something like that in italy uh I don't know. Is that the moon is down? I can't remember. That seems to be <laughs> the Steinbeck story there. But uh yeah, the point of this, though, is that what he's thinking about, what he's communicating to us is that toys are shaped by the way that people use them the same way the Boy Scout knife which is a tool or or, or a knife, or uh, but with the, the same way that his Boy Scout knife or any sort of tool or his axe might be shaped by its use, not by what its limitations are. I mean, anything can be used for any purpose, really. And it's either our own limitations uh, or the limitations placed on us or the limitations of our own imagination that reduce an object to a single purpose. So the narrator here, Weir, has thought of this whole fantasy about soldiering quarters in the dollhouse and using them to as part of some battle imagination, uh, battle fantasy. But that's a girl's toy, so he can't do that. And listen, I grew up with all sisters. I have played with many dollhouses in my life. They're really cool. Uh, My one of my sisters is super into like dollhouse furniture, which is also really cool (laughs) in its own way. Um, But another feature of this dollhouse is that the walls can be removed and you can change the interior structure of it. And then this dollhouse as it's brought up here is is another kind of lost place. It's mutability is a feature, not a
1: bug. Yeah, I think the, the way to describe what he wants to do with these soldiers in the, the Doll's house is really just like a tower defense scenario, I think is <laughs> exactly. what he's got in mind. You know, I don't know which of his other toys are going to be attacking the house, but that seems to be what he's got in mind. Eventually, he'll graduate to like home alone. And then from there, I guess, you know, to some kind of reenactment of the the house on the borderland.
0: <laughs> I think those that is the most likely conclusion of that journey.
1: <laughs> oh, man, yeah, I just finished actually reading to my son the uh, the the Dollhouse Murders, that classic uh, uh, kids book that uh, is actually really quite creepy. and It has made me want to get a dollhouse, but he's still too young for one. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, I think this is around age six, as you said. So maybe maybe Christmas at age six we'll be getting a dollhouse. So we'll see what we'll we'll see what will come of it. I would not mind if it was actually haunted. That would be cool. No,
0: I I just also want to point out this uh, feature of language here that I like a lot. Wolf describes the house when they're going to bed. uh, The the lights go out and he says that when the lamps go out, the house is plunged into quiet. And just that subversion of the norm there is, uh, I don't know, it really jumped out to me. So I wanted
1: to share that with our audience if they're reading along or just listening to get a sense of the story. Yeah, we, we should note some of the, the features of this house. It, it doesn't have indoor lighting. The lighting comes from kerosene lamps, and people are carrying these around with them. Uh, there also does not seem to be any indoor plumbing. Uh, I mean, at the very least, there's a chamber pod in the bedroom, and, and they use it. Uh, but it is at the same time still a big house. It's got multiple parlors. There's a, a large kitchen downstairs. The, the ceilings are also quite high. The, the Christmas tree is described as being very big. But the lighting in particular, right, as a point of contrast with Weir's own house, which has gas lights that you can turn on with a switch. It is also cold in the house, right? It's snowing. And this house simply is not built for like a genuine winter because, you know, hey, it's it's the south here. And that cold matters here. So because it's cold, Weir has trouble sleeping. It is also a new place for him and he's he's young. But at any rate, he goes wandering downstairs and he finds his grandfather in the parlor that he describes as the everyday parlor. And this is where the Christmas tree is. And the tree is lit up now, like with actual candles, with actual flames. Uh, and grandpa says that Weir has just missed Santa Claus, uh, though he, he doesn't say Santa Claus. He calls him old Nick here. And in fact, there are presents under the tree at this moment. And obviously, right, what has happened here is that Weir has caught his grandfather putting the presents out, but Grandpa does a pretty great job of covering for that here. I mean, this is like A-plus work here, I think. And he even shows Weir some of the presents, not the presents for Weir, but but presents for some of the other people here for Christmas. Uh, There's some perfume for Mab Crawford, and then there's a, a pearl necklace for Weir's mother. And this is a very beautiful and very expensive piece of jewelry. That's going to matter in the next segment. But this segment ends with a really great paragraph. I'm actually just going to read this paragraph, and then then we can pause and, and talk about all of this information here. And as if by magic, and it may have been magic, for I believe America is the land of magic, and that we, we now past Americans were once the magical people of it, waiting now to stand to some unguessable generation of the future as the nameless pre-Mycenaean tribes did to the Greeks, ready, at a word, each of us now, to flit piping through groves ungrown, our women ready to haunt as lamiae the rose-red ruins of Chicago and Indianapolis when they are little more than earthen mounds, when the heads of the trees are higher than the 125th floor. It seemed to me that I found myself in bed again, the old house swaying in silence as though it were moored to the universe by only the thread of smoke from the stove. So yeah, there's suddenly this totally crazy apocalyptic image in the middle of this Christmas story. Yeah,
0: this is another America passage here that we're going to look at. We're going to clunk all of these America passages together in our discussion uh, and see, you know, what kind of America is Wolf describing here? What's even going on? The mention of Lamia here really jumps out to me as we've seen a lot of kind of uh, mothers and dead infants in this children in this novel so far. Uh, the Lamiae are are child-eating monsters, essentially. They're also just could be a generic term for demons, I suppose. But this name comes from a woman that Zeus gifted with prophecy after he had an affair with her and Hera made her eat her own children. So here's like this third figure of names here of this, these, I don't know, uh, suggestions that are associated with prophecy that I have no idea what to do with. And I'm not sure that Wolf is trying to tie this section together through some sort of prophetic uh, sense of the character or something like that. It's too early to tell. But the also the proximity of Lamia here to Rose Red, when we look back at the last section that we uh, recapped, is this description of the rose garden with the mother holding the dead infant. Uh, and this is a very strange to me, and I literally just don't know what to do with it. Again, this seems almost too
1: intentional to ignore, though. Yeah, and I'm not really quite sure what it would mean for ruins to be rose red, right? Why would why would the ruins of American cities be rose red? That's a very strange color to to pick there. So, yeah, we'll have to unpack this in the discussion episode for sure, but it's a really haunting image. I mean, this this by itself is just this like really cool, you know, like free verse poem here. It is. It's gorgeous prose.
0: We have two more things I want to just hit real quick before moving on to the next section. The first is that this grandfather, Weir's grandfather, is a naturalist of some kind, uh, or at least Weir imagines him to be one who has studied creatures and has, uh, you know, stuffed animals in his house. House taxidermied animals, and one of them is this stuffed bird that Weir associates with a a simurgh, which is is a mythical bird associated with the phoenix. A Simurgh is, I don't know, in my mind, uh, based on the description, is maybe more like a a griffin or something like that. It's, It's kind of made up by multiple creatures. It's an antagonist to snakes, but it's also giant. So to have this sense... Of this bird being a simmeric is very strange, uh, to me because it, it's probably just like an eagle or a hawk or something like that. Uh, but the simmeric is associated with purity and purifying or healing. It's associated with, uh, fertility as well. And it also has ties to the, to the phoenix myth. So all of this is kind of in here as well. And Glenn, you, you pointed out that Grandfather Elliot referred to Saint Nick, Saint Santa Claus as Old Nick, which the right nomenclature there is Saint Nick, uh, or Santa Claus or Old Saint Nick or like whatever. Old Nick is, is the English name for the devil. Uh, maybe this comes from the word for the word iniquity. Maybe it has some other origins as well. Uh, but it's certainly, you know, not associated with Santa Claus. So maybe that's just a weird little slip here, especially as they're in a room that's literally uh, lit by fire once again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have to say that I really struggled with this scene because just knowing that there are like open flames, like dozens of open flames in this wooden house, uh, middle-aged Glenn just could not deal with that. I was like running for an, a flame, a fire extinguisher <laughs> right, to no. put out this fire. Right. And, th-
0: and this is where the grandfather's like, well, your dad's too much of like a wimp to light fires on his
1: Christmas tree. That's why he's <laughs> not here.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh yeah. But still, this sounds like a really magical Christmas and we've, we've we do have one more segment. We've really got like Christmas morning still to, to deal with here uh, before we we wrap this episode up. And, And it's an interesting Christmas. It is a white Christmas. We're, you know, he wants to open presents right away because he's a kid, but the rules of the house are breakfast first. And Mab Crawford has made a very large, very elaborate meal. Uh, Weir gets started with a sugar cookie. Uh, Grandpa is slow to come downstairs and he has to shave, uh, though he's been out already doing some farming stuff, I think, like feeding the, the horses, he says. And the adults eat so slowly, at least for Weir, who is, you know, really, really, really eager. There is some talk about the snow as well at the breakfast table. Uh, Mab Crawford and Weir's mother think it's pretty, but Grandpa complains about having to go out and feed the horses in it. And Mab suggests that if Weir's mother's sister, this is Aunt Arabella, uh, that if Aunt Arabella were here, the two sisters could throw snowballs at their father. Uh, And the implication is, right, that he's being grumpy. And he needs to lighten up. He needs to, you know, enjoy the snow, enjoy the fact that it's Christmas. And mother here says that she might just do this anyway. And if her son won't help, then Mab Crawford will have to to do it with her. And Mab giggles at this. And it strikes me that this is the second time in this chapter, the first first instance was last episode, but the second time that we've had a servant character find it funny to envision behaving like a child. Uh, And also simply, right, that there is such a bold line between the behaviors of children and the behaviors of adults. I've spent most of this week sledding with my kid, right? But that does not seem to be appropriate adult behavior here in this world. But before we think too much about that, the presence, and then we will close this episode out. Weir gets the pocket knife, of course, right? That's what all of this narration has been about. So we at least knew that was coming. But he also gets a book with an Art Nouveau mermaid and a ship full of Vikings on the cover. What's really important here, though, is that the, the presence that Weir had been shown the night before have now been reversed. It's it's now his mother getting the perfume and Mab is getting the pearls. And Weir was aware of this switch at the time, but as a child, he assumed that his mother had simply traded with Mab. And Mab is really excited for these pearls, by the way. But when he went to college, Weir remembered this moment and he, he thought that the switch was probably really about a sexual element of the relationship between Mab and his grandfather. Basically that his grandfather had switched the presents either because he and Mab had had sex that night, the night of Christmas Eve, or because he wanted to entice her to have sex with him that night, Christmas night. But now that Weir is himself roughly the age that his grandfather was then during this memory, he now thinks that probably his first impulse was right. It's simply that his mother had traded with Mab. And that thought brings us to a section break. So we'll we'll stop here. Right. So that book that, that
0: uh, Weir got... As a child is, is Andrew Lang's Green Fairy Book. That is the cover of the original Green Fairy Book. Uh, it's a mermaid and a Viking ship. And, uh, that, that's that book coming back into Weir's life. And yeah, this gift mix up is initially. Is initially very puzzling feeling, though it's resolved quickly. But reading slowly through the text, even though it's just the next paragraph where uh Weir says, Yeah, the gifts were swapped, that's not explained. That's not the first thing that's explained. All that's explained is that the gifts were given and Mab got the diamond and pearl or the pearl necklace, and um his mother got the perfume the information is communicated in a way where you're just immediately knocked off balance and what really matters though is that the, the end of the section that you t- talked about Glenn once again at the end of this section we are left with weirs extrapolations and he has two explanations for the gift swap Based on how he's felt at different times in his life or different times or things, different things he's felt about his mother or his grandfather. And now that he's in this position as an old man, he thinks differently about it. You know, if he is this kind of er old man, this archetypal man, he, as maybe he believes himself to be, then he can find, he can't find any reason why an old man would give such a gift to his maid, uh, even if he was getting, sex from her, or they had a uh, consensual sexual relationship, not one based on like, if you want to keep working for me, like, uh, you know, we're going to add a sexual element to our relationship. I can think of like several reasons why you might want to give a gift like this to somebody who has basically taken the role of your... um Uh, wife, you're a widower who puts up with all your mean comments, whose own husband has left her for an affair. Like I can think of a lot of reasons why this would be just an act of extreme kindness and maybe of atonement in some sense, uh, and not just rooted in, uh, having sex with your maid, it could indicate that there's a deeper level to that relationship. We also could think that Weir has just misremembered whose gift was whose initially. Um, so there's just a lot left out in the open here. But Weir is very confident in his ability to extrapolate conclusions from incomplete
1: information. And that is what we're left with at the end of this Christmas section. Yeah, these gifts strike me actually as as kind of strange. I think, to my mind, perfume is more intimate and more sexual than jewelry. Uh, you know, which may just be me, but but you know, to my mind, that's the gift, right? That that I would give to a sexual partner rather than the the jewelry.
0: Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I guess it just there's no way of knowing. Different strokes right. for different folks, I suppose. <laughs> I think I think in some families you know like a perfume for a daughter when they come of age or something like that or if they like it um isn't isn't maybe an unusual thing it certainly does indicate an intimate relationship regardless of whether it's sexual or uh a familiar re- familial recognizing of, of a coming of age or a womanhood or something like that
1: right I, I guess what I'm driving at here is that that we're is really focused on only kind of one element of or one one dynamic of what these gifts are specifically. And that's just how expensive they are. Like the actual content of the gift doesn't really seem to matter. He's not thinking about the pearls as pearls or the perfume as perfume. He's really just trying to figure out what happened here based on, you know, the dollar signs associated with, with these gifts.
0: Right, and and what we have to keep in mind is, as we think back to that short treatise on childhood memory, is that what we're left with, what we're is left with, Alden Weir, is the impression, this kind of moment of confusion on Christmas morning that had to do with these gifts, and whether what the facts are is less important. Uh, than what Weir has experienced subjectively. And we can puzzle it out as readers. But I don't know what kind of fruit that's going to bear just yet. uh, Because we don't have enough information to extrapolate on. And look, I'm no I'm no Alden Dennis Weir. I'm really bad at extrapolating from this much incomplete information.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is probably the uh, the more responsible way to go.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'll need a few more data points. Uh, and that's <laughs> going to come, I think, in our next episode. And as we continue our coverage of
1: peace, but that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. We hope you'll join us on our forum at claytemplemedia.com or stop by our subreddit, which is just claytemplemedia, Media, and talk with us about this section of peace. I don't know, we could just swap Christmas stories. If you can, I don't <laughs> know, to tell us cool things to do with a dollhouse would be uh, would be awesome as well. So next time we are going to finish out chapter one. Uh, that'll be pages 42 to 55 in the Orb 2012 edition. Though Of course, after that, we will have a separate discussion episode dedicated to this chapter. But until next time, we greet you and say farewell.